So here's the thing. I only usually bring up a little cheat sheet with me anyway, but it's hard for me to look at it. So I may be winging a good bit of this, which means I tend to say things that are more controversial. <laughs> I told Samuel, like, on the, if you ever watch the videos, if you see me with a shirt that has like a ranger tab on it, that probably means I'm planning on saying something controversial and I don't want anyone who doesn't know me to think they were, are going to come after me. So anyhow, let's, uh, let's begin. How about I read this morning our passage from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Hear the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, he was going down that road. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you would come and you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray against the work of the evil one, even now, if the, as we have sound issues and everything else. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come with great power uh, through your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, if this is your first time here, you probably checked us out online. You know that we're in the middle of a sermon series on the issue of race, ethnicity, and mission entitled, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? And I think today, this morning, is number eight. Um, and up to this point, we've been looking only at the Old Testament. And if, as we've seen up to this point, the Old Testament is full of, of stories and issues and teaching about race and ethnicity and mission. Now what's interesting when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament it itself is almost about nothing else but race, ethnicity, and mission, or at least the gospel's application to that. And so this morning we're going to look at a very famous story. It's not really a parable, it's, it's more Jesus just telling a story, but we'll call it the parable, the Good Samaritan. And what's interesting is this is one of the most important parables in the New Testament for a number of reasons, right? I mean, I mean, it's so famous. Like, I remember when I was a kid that my little sisters were born in Good Samaritan Hospital, right, in Palm Beach County. And people know if you say Good Samaritan, generally speaking, what they think of is um, basically someone who helps someone in need or someone who goes out of their way to help someone in need. And certainly the story we're going to look at this morning is about that on one hand. 
However, what Jesus does is he actually makes it about race. He actually makes the whole parable about race, and that is actually going to define the, the trajectory of the rest of the New Testament. So that's, I know that's a pretty bold claim, but I think it's true. So we're going to start this morning. Um, I, don't, I haven't done this yet. I don't know why I haven't, but this morning we're going to ask a question, and partly it's because I saw a video. And the question is this, is what is racism? Like if you had to define racism, could you define it? You'd think it would be easy. And what, what made me start thinking about this is I saw a video clip this week of a very famous uh, anti-racist. He wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, a guy named Abram X. Kendi. And he was at a seminar. He makes millions of dollars doing seminars, teaching people how to be anti-racist. And someone in the crowd, it was question and answer time, they asked, they raised their hand and said, he, he said, yes, sir, what's your question? He said, can you, you've been talking about racism all morning, can you define racism for me? And he said, well, what do you mean? Can, can you just de- define racism? The guy was at, clearly asking an innocent question. He said, we're here to understand this. We, I don't want to be a racist, so can you define it for me? And he, this is a quote from him. He says, well, racism is a collection of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substan- substantiated by racist ideas. Now, I remember sitting here thinking, I think in third grade I was taught you can't use the word in a sentence if you're asked to to do it. And so I I, genuinely, I'm like, I got to preach about this stuff. What does the dictionary say? And so I looked up the dictionary definition, this from dictionary.com. First of all, it says noun. And then it says a belief or doctrine that inherent differences among various human racial groups determine cultural or individual achievement usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to dominate others or that a particular racial group is inferior to others. Now, if I, I, bet, I bet if I just pulled any of you aside and said, can you, can you define racism? What do you think it is? That you would have probably given me some definition like that, right? It means it's that, well, it means that one race thinks it's superior to another race or that one race, or, or you believe that some other race is inferior to your race. That's race Ism. Now, why didn't Professor Kendi say that? Now, by the way, I'm not critiquing his critiques. That's why we're doing this whole series is because race and racial issues are a problem, serious problem. But what I want to get at is the, the definition. I think the reason he didn't give the dictionary definition is because his own teaching wouldn't have been able to live up to it. Right? The answer in, in that worldview is the answer to racism is racism. The answer to discrimination is more discrimination. And when you read through this stuff, the question, I don't, ask yourself, in, in any scenario, can you imagine Jesus saying, if you said, Jesus, what is the answer to racism or discrimination? Jesus saying, well, it's more racism. It's more discrimination. You need to make things equal. So if there's been, that just isn't the way the gospel works. In other words, we have to look at critiques of issue of race honestly, right? We have to look at the United States and a history of slavery and things like Jim Crow and things like redlining and things like uh, inequitable treatment. We must look at those. That's why we're doing this whole series on one hand. On the other hand, we have to have a worldview that can bring some hope and some healing and some restoration to that. Most other worldviews, what they do is they simply, what they give us is outward conformity and inward hostility, right? Outwardly, I'll act as if I'm not a racist, but inward, I might be more racist than I was before. 
the goal of this sermon series, the goal of the gospel, is to actually is inward transformation. That change would happen because our hearts are actually changing. That reformation would happen because, because of that as well. So with all of that said, you answer what is racism. We need something bigger. What's interesting in the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus takes the, the, a racist worldview and he literally just explodes it. He takes a racist worldview and he crushes it. You see, what's interesting, if, if you are a citizen of the United States and, you know, the year 2021, we sort of think that we invented racism. And you know what? I, I, don't, I don't want to burst your bubble, but we didn't. Right? There has been racism and ethnic tension since the beginning of recorded time. And it was, it was just as bad in Jesus' day, which is why when he tells this parable, he actually confronts it and crushes it head on. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at some legal questions. We're going to look at some religious failures. And finally, we're going to look at a better question. Okay? Legal questions, religious failures, and a better question ultimately. So before we jump into the first point about legal questions, we need to give a little background on the Samaritans and Israel and their relationship. So if you remember Israel, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and as time went on, the the 10 of the tribes became what we call northern Israel, or ultimately Samaria, and two tribes remained in the south, tribe of Judah, tribe of Benjamin, they were southern Israel, they were called Judah. And as time went on, basically around 722 B.C., if I remember correctly, um, the Assyrians came in, this big power, and they basically conquered and invaded and took over all of the ten northern tribes. And that functionally ended Israel's history in northern Israel. And so what they did was they took a lot of the the northern tribes of Israel away to Assyria, but they sent a lot of Assyrians back into Israel to basically repopulate it. So what you had in what was northern Israel now was a population that was mixed. It was mixed between uh, people who are just from Israel, people who were Israelites, but they had married pagan Gentiles. There was um, syncretistic worship, and what I mean by that is they used a little bit of the Old Testament and they used a little bit of pagan worship. And by the time of Jesus' day, you had basically the, the pure Jews, if you will, were in Jerusalem in Judea. And everyone else they looked at with a sort of racial hatred and a racial animosity. And in other words, here's the irony. If you've been listening to this series at all, you remember when Israel came out of Egypt, Moses made a point of telling us they were a mixed race company. In other words, that when they came out, they were, they were composed not just of Semitic peoples, but of black Africans and, and of what we would know of maybe as Asian and, or Asiatic peoples. They came out. And so now by the time of Jesus' day, they've gotten to a point where if you're mixed race, you're not good enough. By the time, they get to, by the time of Jesus' day, they have forgotten where they have come from. They have forgotten the fact that they themselves were a mixed-race people, which if you think about it, every person in this room is a mixed-race person. Everyone. My, my, my own background, I, I, you know, I did the Ancestry.com DNA thing, and I'm, I'm about 25% Irish, surprise, 25% Scottish, 10% Swedish, but the other I'm 40% Serbian. And did you know Serbians are considered people of color? Did you, does that surprise you that I'm a person of color? <laughs> right? Everyone is mixed at some level. 
And so to look at someone and to, to sort of scorn them because they are not as pure as you is sort of ridiculous, but that is the situation they were in. They hated each other. They hated each other with a passion. Now the irony, and what's important to the story, is they really didn't probably look that different from one another. The racial tension had more to do with ideology, it had more to do with religion, it had more to do with their history. If you want to understand, maybe it would be like the relationship between the Irish and the English historically. Right? One of the, one of the things people don't know about U.S. history is one of the reasons we began the African slave trade is because they were running out of Irish people to exploit. And Irish people didn't do well with the mosquitoes. And so the English and the Irish, even though they looked very similar, they hated each other. Same way with the Samaritans and Israel. That's important, and it's important that they look, each other, look like each other. You'll find out in the story. So that, that's for the background. So as we consider the story, let's consider the legal questions that this lawyer asks. So you'll notice um, it says in verse 25, it says, Behold, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just right, right out of the gate, you know this is, is a bogus question because the man speaking is a lawyer, which means his job is to know the Bible. He's not a lawyer like we have lawyers. He's a lawyer with regard to, to Torah issues. And so a lawyer stands up, and it says he stood up in order to test him. So he's trying to catch Jesus. He's trying to see if Jesus can say something foolish or Jesus will say something that they can accuse him of being a heretic. And he stands up and asks him to test him. And the question he asks is bogus. You'll see, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Because you can't, you can't do anything to gain an inheritance. An inheritance, by definition, comes to you by, by grace or by birth. Like It, it just is what it is. And so what, how is Jesus going to answer this? How is Jesus going to tell him, here's what you have to do to receive something by grace? And Jesus does what he often does, is he answers a question with a question. And he said to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And you see what's going on here is a dance. So he's going to test Jesus. You know, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you read it? And what he does is he repeats Jesus' words back to him. Notice verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What he has just done there is he, he must have been listening to Jesus because he has quoted what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. That's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. That is a direct quote from Jesus. And so this scholar, this legal scholar, must have been listening to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you think it says? And he says, well, he tells him, what, well, here's what you've said. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay? So as long as you can do love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you're good to go. Now, in this lawyer's mind, he probably thought, well, I understand what it means to love God. It just means to obey, obey him, right? Obey the law. If I obey the law, that means I'm loving God. What does it mean to obey my neighbor? And so it says, notice in verse 28 or 29, it says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, notice it says he asked this question in order to justify himself or in order to save himself. Like, what exactly do I need to do? Who exactly do I need to love in order to be saved or in order to inherit eternal life? Now, what he was probably expecting from Jesus was a really manageable list, like a super manageable list. And he was expecting that there would be certain people who just weren't on it. 
Like he, he didn't expect Jesus to say, he would, Jesus wouldn't say, well, you need to love Samaritans because everyone hates Samaritans. Jesus wouldn't say that, right? At least that's what the lawyer thinks. How about Gentiles? No, who cares about Gentiles? How about law-breaking Jews? Who cares about them? What he would have expected Jesus to say as a good rabbi is who all, the only people who I really expect you to love are good, faithful, law-abiding Jews. In other words, people exactly like you. If you can just love people exactly like you and obey God all the time, you're good to go. Now, even that is laughable on its face. However, don't we tend to do that? Don't we tend to think, well, the only people I'm really responsible to love are people like me? Or maybe the only people we actually love are people like me. I mean, I was thinking about it. I, th- I think I said it in the video somewhere. You know, I, be- because of my time in the army and because of different things I've done, I have a lot of friends who are black or Hispanic or Asian. But as I thought about it, a lot of them actually are very a lot like me, <laughs> right? For better or for worse, like per- by personality type, by the questions they ask, by the things they like. So even people who look different than me, it's easier to love people who act like me and believe the same things that I believe. Is that what you mean, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? And so instead of a manageable list, what Jesus does is give him a story. And this story is really a story about um, religious failures. Because remember, here's a rabbi or, or a scholar, a legal scholar who's asking. So let's look at legal failures for a minute. So it says in verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. So, What's the scenario here? The scenario, basically, if you, if you, I'm sure you all are pulling up a, a mental map of the Middle East right now. <laughs> basically, Jericho would be to the northeast of Jerusalem, and what's probably happening is, you know, the the priests and Levites. There's been some time of worship. There's been a temple service, and people are now heading back from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that is really also on the border of Samaria. Right. And Samaria is like the bad part of town if you are Jewish. And so Jesus says that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, so the assumption here in the story is that this man is probably Jewish because he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. In other words, If he was Samaritan, he wouldn't be spending time in Jerusalem, and he wouldn't be going to the Jewish city of Jericho, so he is probably Jewish. However, the problem is, not only has he been beaten, not only has he been left half dead, we assume he can't speak, but he is naked. Now, why is that a problem besides just being naked? It's it's naked because there's no way for anyone who's walking by to identify him racially or ethnically. They can't look at his clothing and say, oh, that's a Samaritan. We better avoid him. Or, or maybe, oh, that's a Jew. We should go help him. They don't know. He's been stripped, so he's naked. He's just a person. He can't speak, so they can't see if he speaks Aramaic or, he, or if he speaks some other Semitic dialogue. They don't know. All they have before them is a person who probably looks like them, who is in bad shape, can't move, naked, can't do anything. And what do they do? Well, notice what happens. I love it in... in the way Jesus sort of plays with this. In verse 31, he says, now by chance, 
What do you know? Fortuitously, by coincidence, a priest happened by. And it says a priest was going down the road and he saw him and passed by him on the other side. Now the priest probably had been serving in Jerusalem. He, you, you did a two-week stint and then you got to go home for the rest of the year. So he probably did his two-week stint. He's probably going home. Um, in, other, in other words, the priest is on his way home from church when this happens. And I can tell you what, the last time I want to help anybody is after, on the way home from church. And, I, and the thing, oftentimes, you know, you're a pastor and you're, you're about to leave and someone will come up and they'll ask for assistance. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Sit down. Deacon, <laughs> find someone. But the fact is, he's on his way. He's, he's done his service and he's on his way home. Also, priests were known to be wealthy, actually. So more than likely, he had a donkey or some animal that he was riding. And the priest drives by. And he sees this guy, and the problem the priest has immediately is what I mentioned before, he's naked. So he's not sure what to do. You see, because if he was Jewish, if the man was Jewish, the priest might have this sense like, well, if he's Jewish, I got to like help him out. You know, I got to do something. What if someone finds out he's a Jew and I didn't help him? And yet, on the other hand, he probably has going through his mind. But if I do try and help him, what if I go over there and he's dead? If I go over there and he's dead, if I come anywhere near him, then I'm going to be made unclean. Then I got to go back to Jerusalem for two weeks and I got to go through purification. It's going to cost me, you know, a week of my time, a week there, a week over. And what my wife's going to kill me because I'm not going to be home in time for lunch. It's going to be crazy. And so eventually the priest basically decides that, that ceremonial purity is more important than this man's life or even checking on this man's life. And it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. So the priest keeps going. And the next person to come along is a Levite. Now, what's interesting, the Levite, you, you're going to have some sympathy on the Levite. At least I do. Um, Le, what, what did Levites do? Levites assisted the priests. And so the Levite probably knew the priest was ahead of him, that the, that the priest, you know, that they had probably served together. The Levite was just an assistant. And so the Levite comes upon this man and he sees him and the same questions that happened with the priest would have gone through his head, except he would have had a few more questions, is why did the priest pass him up? In, in other words, if the pastor didn't stop and help this guy, there must be some reason that this guy isn't being helped, so I'm not going to help him. Or if the pastor thought it was wrong to help this guy, I'm not going to help him. And so there's a sense in which he is actually just going off of the precedent already set by the priest. The other issue is the issue of awkwardness is that if he does help the guy, imagine he does help the guy, he takes him into Jericho, and the priest then would be in the situation of, hey, did you see that guy on the road? And the priest would have had to either lie and say, no, I didn't see him. Or he would have had to explain why he didn't stop to help him. He would really look like a jerk. And so does the assistant pastor ever want the senior pastor to look like a jerk? No. Not if he values his job. <laughs> and so he also passes him by. And so this poor guy is just laying in the street with all these political and religious calculations going on. And it's a complete and utter failure. Anyone could see that. And then what Jesus does is he drops a bomb because what you would have expected in the story if you were sitting around in the crowd is that first came a priest and he failed and then came a Levite and he failed but then came a good law-abiding Jew and he actually took care of business. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't follow that trajectory down to its logical end. But you notice he used the word but. But, 
a Samaritan, as he journeyed to where he was, when he saw him, he had compassion. I mean, Jesus drops this huge race bomb right in the middle of this crowd. And this, you could do this in any scenario. You could say um, that, that an upper-class white Ku Klux Klansman was, was beaten and left on the side of the road, and two Klansmen passed him by, but a black man stopped and had compassion on him, right? That would be shocking, or you can use any race. You could say that between Chinese and Japanese, maybe. You could do any kind of thing. The point is, is here are people who supposedly were, had these ingrained racial animosities, and Jesus says the one who actually helped, the one who actually stopped, the one who actually had compassion wasn't the faithful, law-abiding Jew, but it was the, out, it was the despised and the outcast Samaritan. He is the one. And what did the Samaritan do? It says in verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in among the robbers? So here's the Samaritan. He doesn't know that this man is a Jew. He probably is. He probably knows that. And he, he actually spends his time he spends his money, his resources in order to help this man. But what's, what, what is underlying this whole thing that's not exactly obvious is that he is also risking his life to save this man. You know, there are no inns on the side of the road. Like in, the, in, the, in America, right, you can, you can drive from, from Seattle to Olympia and there are inns all the way around, along the highway. They didn't have that in the ancient Near East. You only had inns in major cities. So when the Samaritan was helping this man, he either would have had to take him back to Jerusalem or forward to Jericho, probably to Jericho, to find an inn, to a Jewish place. So the Samaritan is riding into town with a beaten Jewish guy on his animal and he takes him to an inn and says, take care of him and I will pay you the rest when I come back. Kenneth Bailey writes a lot about this parable, and he says this would be the equivalent in 1850 in the Old West for a Native American to find a cowboy with arrows in his back and to put him on a horse and to walk the horse into Dodge City and say, I didn't do this, but he needs help. What would have happened? People would have probably shot first and asked questions later, or they probably most certainly wouldn't have been thankful. And yet this Samaritan did all those things. He gave his time, he gave his resources, and he risked his very life to save this man. And that leads to this better question that Jesus asks at the end. Notice what Jesus says in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Did you notice how Jesus changed the question? Right? If you're only ask the, asking the question, who is my neighbor, you're going to end up with a very limited list. And in fact, you probably won't be able to make a list. Jesus says, here's the better question. The better question, instead of saying, who is my neighbor, the better question is asking, to whom should I be a neighbor? In other words, he says, which of these men proved to be the neighbor to the, to the man who was injured? And what, what else could the lawyer say but... The third one. Notice he doesn't even he doesn't even say the the Samaritan one. He says the other one. You know the one who showed mercy. That's right. 
So the, the question we have is to whom should I be a neighbor? And Jesus drops this bomb here and shows us that we should be a neighbor to anyone and everyone who is in need without regard to their race or their ethnicity or even their ideology or their religion. That our job as Christians is to be neighbors to everyone who is in need and to not discriminate. In fact, it goes even further than that. That, that Jesus would tell us ultimately that we are to actually not just be a neighbor to those who are not like us and be a neighbor to those who are racially different to us, but even we should be neighbors to those who hate us. We should love and show mercy to those who hate us. You see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is where I think this sets the trajectory for the whole New Testament. Remember what Jesus tells this, the disciples in Acts chapter 8, right? He's risen from the dead, and he's going to want them to preach the gospel throughout the world. And he tells them to go where? He says, will not you go to Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth? Right? He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Everyone loves you there, I know. They won't love you for long once you start preaching, but for now, they do. Go to Judea, that's where your families are from, that'll be pretty easy. And then I want you to go to Samaria, where people hate you. Jesus could have said anything. A lot of scholars said if he was just being geographical, he would have said Galilee. Jesus is making a theological point in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you are not only to go to those close to you and those far away from you geographically, but you are to go to those close to you ideologically and religiously and those far from you ideologically and religiously, those close to you racially and those far from you racially. Now, you get to this point in a sermon like this, and it would be really easy for me to make you feel guilty and say, so how are you doing? How are you doing reaching out to people you hate? <laughs> how are you reaching out across racial lines? How are you doing all, reaching out across ethnicities? And you know what? I'm not going to do that because at the end of the day, it wouldn't serve any other purpose than to do the same thing that other worldviews do. Create an outward conformity and an inward hostility. You know, you read books like Radical. I don't know if some of you read Radical. People are like, Pastor, I read this book, Radical. You need to read it. And I read it, and I was like, I hate this book, and I threw it away. Because Radical basically says, if you really love Jesus, you need to just sell everything and go leave everything. And you know, some people are called to do that. But some people do that just because they feel guilty and they think God will love them more. You see, the reason that we are able and we should be able more and more to love people this way and to love people this way when the world can't love people this way is because Jesus has already been the good Samaritan for us. Jesus, Jesus didn't just give his time. He didn't just give his resources. And he didn't just risk his life. He actually gave his life for us. He gave his life not only for those who are different than him, but for those who were enemies. Let me close by reading Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 starting at verse 6, says this. It says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, what Jesus has done 
is he has fulfilled this story of the Good Samaritan in each of our lives if you have trusted him and you have been reconciled to God. There is no distinction now, and we're going to see that in future sermons, right, that he has torn down the wall between Jew and between Gentile and between all the races, and now instead of it being us and them, you know, white versus black or Chinese versus Japanese or something, now it is Christians, regardless of what race they are, for the world, Christians, regardless of what ethnicity they are, to be a blessing to others, to be a neighbor to everyone in the world. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would, um, you would both motivate us and convict us of our, of our sins, frankly, and, and of our apathy. But I also pray that you would encourage us with the gospel, that we are, we are not just called to go be neighbors, but you, we, in fact, are empowered to be neighbors by the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen. And amen.